time, let us join together hearing our scripture lesson this morning, which comes from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them divide themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So during the season of Lent, we are paying attention to a curious phrase that was coined coined, I guess coined, somebody probably said it before, but made famous at least by the founder of modern United Methodism, John Wesley. In one of his uh, reflections, uh, theological reflections, he made a note, um, kind of a critique of this divergent path that was happening in spirituality, in the Christian journey. And it was this path that was being adopted by the mystics of the time. And uh, the mystics have certainly uh, uh, crafted, provided a great deal of spiritual insight for us, but Wesley also said it's not a perfect path because one thing that the mystics prioritized was this personal piety, this very, very personal faith. And to that end, Wesley had some critiques and he said, this notion of personal faith is inherently flawed because there's nothing solely personal about faith. He even goes so far to say there is no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. And in this, he continues on to say that holiness, this endeavor for holiness that in this journey, isn't something that just happens in isolation. It happens in community. In fact, it's so ingrained and so, uh, it so necessitates community that, that that's the whole purpose of the church, to be that community. And then to reach out into the community to provide more community. And it's all about this social notion because we as human beings are social creatures. So, as we consider that and this spiritual journey that we are on, I want us to consider a single question today. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? Uh, does somebody want to answer that question? Let's see how uncomfortable people might be today. Yeah, I'm not really feeling it today. All right, no problem. <laughs> 
to be a disciple? Well, uh, we kind of tend to translate this as a student, uh, a learner, an apprentice even. And yes, that's true, um, but also the implications of being a disciple are contingent on uh, the what of it all. A disciple of what? Well, a disciple of blacksmithing, well, they're discipleship journey and what it means to disciple to be a disciple is going to look very different or at least somewhat different to a disciple of the academic realm of philosophy I'll do it that way using older disciplines here um, but yeah so it, what it means to be a disciple is kind of contingent on what we are a disciple of now we take this into the Christian realm and say well of Christ. To be a Christian is, well, boils down to being a disciple of Christ. Perhaps not exactly the same kind of disciple as the 12 whom Jesus surrounded himself with, uh, but a disciple, a student of, a follower of Christ. Okay, so then we have our what? A disciple of Christ. So then what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? To what end are we learning? What's the destination? Any other disciple is looking to make uh, this a profession, to become a professional in their discipline. For Christians, it's kind of, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to be a professional Christian. Some people think that I'm a professional Christian and that can't, that is like nothing further from the truth. I'm like not good at it at all. I try, but I'm not really a professional at it. Um, so there's something a little bit different there than just being a professional. Discipleship is leading us towards something a little bit more unique than other disciplines might. And we could argue that that is holiness. Holiness is about the closest thing to professional Christianity uh, that we could really attend to. And so we then have to ask the question, what kind of holiness does Christ teach? And whenever I say, what kind of holiness does Christ teach, uh, that might sound kind of weird. Is there more than one kind of holiness? Uh, yes, there is. To be holy is to simply be set apart. Okay, set apart from what? I said we were only going to attend to one question today, and here I am throwing out a whole bunch of questions for us to consider, but that's what happens when you really want to pick apart a question. There's a lot more questions that follow it. To be set apart, to be sanctified, to be something uniquely different. Well, if we follow Christ's teachings, if we adhere to that whole realm of what Christ is leading us towards and what discipleship is leading us towards, we learn that the holiness that Christ teaches is also social holiness. Social holiness. This notion that there is more than just me that exists here on this earth. And this notion that there is more than just me necessary to get by on this earth. And the notion that there is a we that is absolutely necessary to consider in our journey of faith. So, we dive into our passage today. But before we get into our passage, we've got to have a little context because 
Scripture plus context then equals meaning. So we have a little bit of context. Just before our passage today, we have this moment in which somehow the disciples are having some amount of a conversation about what they've been hearing in the towns that they're going to. And they are starting to hear people talking about Jesus. And so Jesus picks up on this and says, who do people say I am? And the disciples say, well, it sounds like some people think you're a prophet, some of you people think you're Elijah, uh, others this, and others this, and others this. Uh, there's a lot of speculation going around. And Jesus says, yeah, okay, I, I imagine that's probably true. There is a lot of speculation going around about who Jesus is. And so he turns the question to the disciples. These are supposed to be the people who know the answer, right? These are supposed to be the people who are at least learned enough to give an answer. And so he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter is the first to jump up, and, it, and, and the way that Mark writes it, it makes it sound like before Jesus even finished his question, who do you say I am? Peter was ready, and he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Wow. And it's this great declaration in which, which you know, he's got it. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then, we then get to our passage, Jesus starts teaching openly to his disciples about what he must endure, that the Son of Man must go through great sufferings and eventually be killed, crucified. And after hearing this, uh, Peter takes Jesus aside. Come here, Jesus, we need, we need to talk about what you're saying here. Because what you're saying is crazy. So come, come over here. Let's talk about this. Jesus, you, you can't be saying things like that. Jesus, that, that can't be true. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I imagine that was kind of startling for Peter. What? Excuse me? <laughs> I thought I had this right. You just said I, I had the right answer. You just gave me a gold star. Now, what's all this yelling about, Jesus? Get behind me, Satan. What's all of this? He says, and then... He tells Peter, you are setting your mind not on divine things, but human things. Peter makes this claim, before, before our passage today, Peter makes this claim that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And this is, this is a true statement. However, don't you hate it when that however word is thrown in there? However, it is still shaped and entirely influenced by Peter's own knowledge and wisdom to make a claim about the Messiah and what it means to be the Son of God, that can only be shaped by Peter's own assumptions. Peter has this notion about what it means for somebody to be the Messiah, for somebody to be the Son of God. And so... When Jesus starts talking about things that don't line up with Peter's image of the Son of God, with Peter's image of the Messiah, he takes Jesus off to the side to rebuke him. Peter has one image of the Messiah, of the Christ, of who the Son of God is supposed to be. Peter is like each and every one of us. He had an idea an image of who Christ is supposed to be. 
Did you catch it there? I said, Peter is like every one of us. We also have an idea, an image of who Christ is supposed to be. This is faith. We have this notion that is built on our conventional knowledge and wisdom. And so often, we let it stay right there. Peter had created the Messiah in his own image. Not literally, but for himself. Peter had created the Messiah in his own image, saying, Jesus, what you're talking about, this whole needing to go suffer and die and then rise from the dead in three days, that's not who the Messiah is supposed to be. And Jesus says, yes, it is who the Messiah is supposed to be. You're talking to the Messiah. Why are you telling me who I'm supposed to be? This doesn't make any sense. Why are you rebuking me? Get behind me, Satan. Adversary. One who is standing in my way. Get behind me. Peter had created the Messiah in his own image instead of allowing the Messiah to shape him in an image of holiness. This is why Jesus says, you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Peter was setting his mind on human things by creating the Messiah in a human image, saying, this is who you are supposed to be. And we do this exact same thing in the church. As Christians, we do this exact same thing. For example, what are some of the things, go go ahead and think about it, what are some of the things that we as Christians often say are some of the most important things? Go to church. Imagine if you're here today, that's at least somewhat of a priority to you, to go to church. If you've ever driven... uh, I-65 up towards, uh, up north, you've probably passed a sign that says, go to church or the devil will get you. Because we, as Christians, have said, this is a priority for Christianity. Ironically, Jesus never tells anybody to go to church. In fact, he kind of tells people to get out of the synagogues and go into the world to go. (laughs) Jesus doesn't really have a whole lot to say about going to church or at synagogue. Church wasn't really a thing in Jesus' time, but yeah, it's not really on Jesus' radar. But yet we have claimed it as a priority. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, but just acknowledge that it's not one of Jesus' priorities. Also, another example, reading Scripture. Now, already I've just made a controversial claim, but note that Jesus doesn't say all that much about how much time you should spend in Scripture. Spend spend reading your Bible. Instead, he says a lot about how much time you should be acting on Scripture. Now, granted, in Jesus' time, Scripture wasn't widely printed and available, and even those uh, where it was around, there were few people who could actually read it. So, a little bit of context helps there. But just note where the priority is at. Jesus doesn't instruct people to spend a whole lot of time reading Scripture. Jesus spends a whole lot of time telling people to spend a whole lot of time acting on it. And then also, and probably one of my favorites, following the rules. Have you ever noticed that that in the church, um, it seems like there are like all of these unspoken rules? Like, how come nobody ever wears a hat in the church? You're not supposed to wear a hat in the building. 
Well, Jesus never said you're not supposed to wear a hat in the building, so where did this come from? Well, it came from a, an amount of conventional wisdom in a developing society that just said, well, it's kind of rude to do that. And so the church kind of adopted and said, this is a rule. If you're wearing a hat in church, you're probably not a very good Christian. My goodness, how many rules we have. Did you know that at one point in the life of the church, this right here was closed. The, the altar rail stopped. Oh, you, you couldn't just freely pass through here. There's this rule that if you're sitting out there, that's where you're supposed to be. You're not allowed to come up here. If you came up here, you probably got in a lot of trouble. But then one day, the church said, that's a pretty silly rule. In fact, in the very example of Jesus, we are welcomed to come closer to God, symbolized in the altar. And so they said, get rid of that. Let's let people be able to come and join. I'm not sure how many of you have ever actually come up here, but I want to invite you. If, you, if you've never been up here after service today, um, don't crowd, please remain responsibly distanced. But if you've never come up here before, I want to welcome you too. There's no rule against it. There once was, but it's a rule. Um, running in the church is another one. Oh, man, I, I, I remember some of the worst times I got in trouble as a kid was for running in the church. Uh, why? Why is it a rule? Jesus never said anything about running in the, in the church. In fact, he said, let the little children come to me. And guess what? If you invite a little child to come to you, it's not very often that they walk very respectfully towards you. They run. We have all of these rules, and we say, if you're going to be a good Christian, you follow the rules. And these, these are superficial rules. There are a lot more that we say are based in Scripture, but we aren't so willing to acknowledge why we have based them in Scripture when they're really our rules and not Jesus's. But what I'm saying here, as I'm getting off on this, uh, this little tangent here in my digression, is that, is that we have created the Messiah in our image. We have crafted the Christ and what it means to be a disciple of that Christ in our image. When the actual Christ, Jesus, said zero things about it. And just because Jesus didn't say something about it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't think about it or talk about it. It might not just have been written down. But what I want us to consider is what Jesus actually wants from us, what Jesus actually instructs his disciples to do. When Jesus actually tells people what to do, does anybody have an idea of what he tells them to do? I'll give you a hint. It's rooted in the first and second greatest commandments. To love to feed the hungry, it's a command. To clothe the naked, to visit the sick and imprisoned, to care for the widows and the orphans, to seek justice, to love God and one another. In other words, what I'm getting at here is that the Christian church has adopted a whole bunch of these rules and these policies and these things that we feel like we're supposed to do out of a very personal faith, saying, this is mine. This is my faith. 
And this is how it's supposed to be. And yet Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, has crafted for us a whole different image of discipleship, one of social holiness, one that says, it's really nice and fine for you to go off by yourself and spend some time with God. Just make sure you come back to the people. It's really nice and fine if you want to go out and spend time reading scripture all by yourself. Yes, that's great. Just make sure that what you've learned you take to love on the people. It's really nice and fine, and there's nothing wrong with it. And in fact, it's actually encouraged to come to church and join in this community together. Just make sure that this church is actually transforming your life to go out to the people, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. Does anybody remember there is one individual who sought to be a disciple of Christ? One individual who sought to be a disciple of Christ and was told, you're not ready. He's pictured on one of the back windows. I can't remember which side. Yes, the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and said, Lord, allow me to follow you. And even what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the law, the commandment. Honor your father and mother, all of these things. And the rich young ruler says, all of these things I have done since my youth. Everything. I've followed all of the rules. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. And the rich young ruler says, yes, yeah, sure, just tell me. I'll do it. I'll, I'll put it in my rule book. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. The rich young ruler walks away sad and we don't hear from him again. Why? Because... It's a lot easier to follow Jesus into a personal faith than it is to follow Jesus into a social faith. It's a lot easier to follow Jesus into a holiness that I have crafted in my image than it is to follow Jesus into a holiness that Jesus has set before us in the image of social holiness. We end up crafting Jesus in our image, and it ends up being a very solitary, me-centered faith. It's all about what I'm comfortable with. It's all about what I think is right. We set our minds on human things, whereas Jesus calls us to a social holiness, one that is a Christ-centered faith, not a me-centered faith, where all people belong. We are called to set our minds on divine things, not on human things. We are called to step into a social holiness. And Jesus offers one very difficult critique in all of this, or challenge, perhaps. He says in, uh, in verse 38, those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those who are ashamed of me and my words. So let me ask each of us, each of us, myself included, are we ashamed of who Christ is? The real Christ, not the Christ we have made in our image. Are we ashamed of who Christ is? 
Maybe a better question is, do we prefer the Christ we imagine over the Christ who has challenged us to live into a social holiness? What might it look like to be ashamed of Christ and his words? Um, It's very obvious, in fact. It ends up being a lukewarm faith where we try to tell Jesus what is right. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the audacity of somebody standing before Christ and saying, let me tell you how it's supposed to work around here. But that's what we do in the church. We have that audacity to say, Jesus, let me tell you how it's supposed to work around here. This is what faith is supposed to look like. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on human things instead of divine things because these divine things that Jesus is talking about calls us to acknowledge one another. And not only to acknowledge one another, but to see one another's humanity. And not only see one another's humanity, but to love what we see there. And to love unconditionally. It ends up being a faith. A faith of shame, that is. It ends up being a faith where we only do the bare minimum when Christ calls for our entirety. In verse 34, after he's just... So, movement of things. Peter declares, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, very good. Now, here's what's going to happen to the Son of the living God. Uh, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise in three days. Peter says, no, no, come here. You, You can't be saying those things, Jesus. Get it together. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on human things, not divine things. And then he turns to the disciples because he wants them all to hear this. It's not a personal thing for just Peter to hear. It's for all the disciples to hear. And he tells them, if any want to become my followers, do you want that, church? Do you want to become a follower of Christ? Maybe you already are. But ask if you really want it. Because if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? If any want to follow me, let them deny themselves. To deny oneself is to say that I'm not the most important thing on the face of this planet. The world doesn't revolve around me. In fact, there is a whole we that I haven't accounted for. To deny oneself, to take up their cross. Guess what? A cross is not very comfortable. I don't know if you knew this or not. A cross is not very comfortable. It's not a pew. It's not a lazy boy. It's not a home, a house. It's a place of public display, and even meant to be a place of public humiliation and hardship and suffering. Jesus calls us to take up that cross, the uncomfortable cross, and to follow. Why? Because it's not all about me. It's not all about you. 
It's about the gospel for all people, the good news for each and every person. So my challenge for us today is to set our minds on divine things, to stop thinking that the Jesus we have in our mind, the Jesus we have crafted for ourselves, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and to start acknowledging that the Messiah, the Messiah, isn't supposed to be something that we have crafted for ourselves, but is a Messiah for the people, not just for me alone and not for my convenience, and not for my rule book, and not for anything that I feel like it's supposed to be. But this is the Messiah of love. This is the Messiah that glances upon the face of every individual and says, you belong here. All of you. Not a one to be excluded. So set your mind on divine things. Let us stop being a church that says these are the rules and this is the way it's going to be. Let us start being a church that says this is our Messiah and we're going to love the way that he loved. And let us pray.